Hey everyone, Libba here. Today's episode is from our 2022 season of members-only programs that we are releasing to the public. Consider becoming a member or digital member to enjoy our 2023 season of members-only programs. A link to register online is in the episode description. In this interview, Marie is joined by Dr. Brandy Brimmer to discuss Dr. Brimmer's fascinating book, Claiming Union Widowhood. This book explores the challenges and experiences of African-American widows who navigated the U.S. pension system after the Civil War. Check out the episode description for a link to purchase the book, as well as a promo code for a 30% discount. Here is Dr. Brimmer. So um, my name is um, Brandy Brimmer. I am a uh, associate professor at UNC Chapel Hill. I teach in the Department of African, African American and Diaspora Studies, trained as a historian. Um, and so it's really exciting to be able to work in this interdisciplinary space that takes uh, African, African American and Diaspora Studies really seriously sort of um, methodologically. Um, in terms of interdisciplinary methodology. So uh, that's what I'm up to. And I would also say that I teach uh, classes dealing with slavery and freedom. We'll talk a lot about that um, today. Um, I'm interested in questions of biography, and I think you'll see footprints of that in the book. Uh, my future work is taking up biography, also inspired by just extraordinary you know, folks working on different um, books and topics, um, some related to um, North Carolina, but but also really just really taking really creative approaches to the archives. And so that's a little bit about me, what I teach about, and some little nuggets of what's what's going on in, in claiming union widowhood. So let's first begin with the concept of marriage and how was marriage generally understood and conducted in enslaved populations? Importantly, even as the way you frame the, the question that in, enslaved people valued um, and embraced marriage, slave marriage, using that terminology means um, really is, is sort of a recognition that is not recognized by law, yet enslaved people formed intimate relationships that took the form of marriages within their communities. This is an interesting sort of idea because while they had no legal standing within their communities, oftentimes it required the consent of masters. So oftentimes you see enslavers very interested in their enslaved property marrying. Sometimes that could take place on a large plantation with a large population. Sometimes that took the form of uh, cross-farm uh, marriages. That means enslaved populations marrying, you know, maybe miles apart and um, people would have some uh, passes to, to visit their spouses. The, the marriages themselves in terms of the celebration or recognition, again, though not recognized by law, a, a master might officiate. There are examples of enslaved preachers officiating. And so there's a, there's a wide array of the way in which these, these relationships take, take shape. But what I would emphasize here is that there are also clashes whereby um, for enslaved people, for example, as important as their intimate partnerships and marriages are, they really believe in, in community endorsement. And so sometimes there are clashes uh, with masters uh, who oftentimes see themselves very involved in the, the defining of a marriage. But that might not always be the case. Um, sometimes enslaved people had to you know, were involved in marriages that had no recognition by uh, masters or owners. Um, they valued community endorsement. Even the idea that uh, a child could be Ill illegitimate 
not not so much in an enslaved community whereby there's a very broad sort of understanding not only of marriage but family and community that embraces individuals. The last thing that I would say about slave marriages is their vulnerability. Enslaved couples are quite frankly always subject to separation and that could be driven by the slave market. Um, it could be driven by a death in a owner's family. It could be driven by the, the marriage of children within an owner's family and they uh, separate families to give gifts of, you know, an enslaved person to their children. So slave marriages um, take many forms. They are oftentimes monogamous, but sometimes not because uh, couples are separated. You see enslaved persons, once separated, taking on additional spouses, but perhaps still recognizing a spouse that they're separated from. What I find really interesting in the, the records is the uh, ability of enslaved persons to keep track of that and those connections and those family ties. And so that alone is, is fascinating. There's many historians who have used um, pension records, which I use to document this. Um, but, but I'm emphasizing this because it, it does become a really big issue in the later, in, in, in my book, but also in the later question of, of literally claiming survivors' benefits uh, after the war. So in what ways could Black women stay connected to their husbands during the Civil War? So, so one of the things, and, and this question of marriage and family is important because it actually um, keeping it in, in mind as a value that, that enslaved people carry helps to understand some of the patterns that you'll see. So for example, even enlistment patterns, I uh, was able to start parsing out men who were not necessarily attached um, in intimate relationships might enlist, you know, run away and enlist um, in certain places. I have examples of people who had family members that made sure that their families settled first and then they would go on to enlist. So in, in cases like that, uh, where the husband is, you know, ensuring the safety of his family and then enlisting, um, communication is a, is a huge deal. And there are networks and circuits of communications that, that move back and forth, not only from refugee sites to the battlefields, but also from the battlefields to former uh, plantations, farms, or owners where people are living. Not all enslaved people are able to run away or, or refugee a refuge to um, sites of liberation during this period. But, but specifically what I find is that in, in some cases, women remain attached because they literally enlist themselves, if you will, um, doing domestic services and, and actually traveling with their, their husband's regiment during the war, right? And so there's, there's sort of close ties and maybe in some instances they have to stay back, but they're, they're traveling closely with their husbands. But the other thing that I found in the records is that Oftentimes, different enlisted men, as they return to refugee sites or, or home sites, they are carrying information from the battlefield back to those refugee sites. And so there's these sort of information uh, networks um, that are traveling back and forth. And I would also say that uh, women are also giving messages, letters, or communicating um, their experiences in refugee sites that then move to the battlefield. Um, soldiers, of course, are concerned about how their families are being treated. Um, when they're away from the household. They, they're concerned about enlistment and the vulnerability of um, their families. And I think that's, you know, sort of across, across the board, but certainly enslaved uh, or men that are newly liberated are concerned about that. So, so communication is actually really important. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's a wonderful question because 
is something that you will see, you know, sort of how information is traveling and quite frankly, is traveling from enlisted men, comrades who are moving back and forth and, and circulating that information. Sometimes it's coming from women who are traveling with their husbands, but who have to stay back or may return. They're carrying messages back and forth. So where, whereas the enlistment process, as I started, uh, I would say is communal, so too is, is the nature of sharing information. So what happened to people who had been formerly enslaved shortly after the American Civil War, once they were emancipated? Were they able to go, you know, what, where were they able to go if they were able to go anywhere and, and how were they able to support themselves? So how did this experience of, of war and then emancipation affect um, their lives? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, this is another fascinating question um, and one that probably explains why I have sort of staked my career in this area of study, because I think it's fascinating. You have literally a sea change in terms of legal status, but you have a sea change in the way newly freed people are going to live their lives. And once again, you can begin to see the priorities they and the value they place on intimate partnerships, marriage, and family in those initial days, weeks, and months of freedom. So one of the things you begin to, to see is enslaved, formerly enslaved people and women really recuperating their lives and thinking about family and marriage. There's an incredible amount of movement as there was during the war, but on this occasion, it is to oftentimes find family members who were lost in slavery. Right. So um, thinking about uh, the domestic slave trade, thinking about the large numbers of people who were moved from the upper south to the lower south, you begin to see people traveling in search of family members. You asked earlier about how people are communicating and what those communications or networks uh, facilitate during the war. Those same networks are mobilized in the moment of emancipation in terms of locating lost family members. You begin to see people um, stake their claims on communities and organized families. You see them embracing legal uh, marriage, which was unavailable to them when they were enslaved. They're beginning to organize their religious lives. There are um, many religious institutions, particularly in places like New Bern, had already be, you know, been in existence. But with emancipation, now they're far more visible. You see families Mothers, fathers, single mothers, prioritizing education and literacy, not only in their lives, but in the lives of their children. You also see individuals thinking about work and how they're going to support themselves. And because uh, slavery, first and foremost, was about work, right, um, and labor, uh, you think about the skill sets that, in, you know, newly freed people are bringing to bear on the free labor economy. In, in that regard, you have the military, but the but military administrator, but also a, an enormous presence from the United States government in the form of the, the Freedmen's Bureau, which is established in March of 1865. They are oftentimes in charge of assisting free people transition to free labor society. But one of the things that's really fascinating is when you begin to look at those contracts, you begin to see uh, free people really sort of haggling over their labor. And even when you begin to look at choices that uh, free people are making about their, their labor, for example, you see women prioritizing labor within their homes, right? So initially I talked about recuperating their lives. They're 
organizing their households, they're allocating and dedicating their labor toward their, their families, child raising work, um, the work that's involved in supporting, caring, cooking, doing the laundry sort of household duties. But they're also thinking about wage earning opportunities that allow them to, again, prioritize family and avoid white interference, the kind of interference that is a kind of reminiscent of slavery, making choices around that. And as that begins to happen, I mean, I think that question in and of itself is, is fascinating, right? Because you're talking about People often say, you know, you're talking about 4 million people emancipated or, or with the 13th Amendment, you know, sort of a, a emancipated and, and transitioning into free labor society. But when you think about this question of gender and when you think about women's choices in particular to remove yourself from the labor force, to remove your children from the labor force, now you have a crisis of labor because you have a large portion of the labor force that had been working under slavery it's not that they're not working, but they're reallocating their work in a way that prioritizes themselves and their communities. And you begin to have a crisis of, of free labor because free people are not adopting the sort of values that Northerners and military administrators are expecting to come out of the free labor bargain, if you will. And so you, you also have in the moment of emancipation, I talked about movement and travel, but also, you know, seeing people's business savvy, they're, they're setting up businesses, they're celebrating, they're certainly celebrating the return of um, soldiers home, uh, coming, coming home. Um, and so it's, a, it's an incredible moment in which newly free people are occupying public spaces in ways um, that had, hadn't been possible before and really sort of creating spaces of joy and fulfillment for themselves and their communities as, as, as well. And so uh, I, I, would, I would echo what many scholars have said already, right, in the, the literature, and that is that family um, is sort of the central pillar of the Black community and from that and locating family members and, and reestablishing re those connections uh, really forms the basis of the community um, extension that you see in, in emancipation, that those early months and days. Yeah. So how would information about receiving pensions as a widow be disseminated to these black communities? Yeah, so this is a this is a thousand dollar million dollar question. Um, it's a good one and it's a question that that you know fascinated me um, and, and I think in some ways really drove some of the sort of basic ways that I looked at their the, the records for, for this study. You know, how how did they how did they even know? And the answer to that is that um, what I can tell from the patterns of, of uh, petitioning, that is how many people begin to petition, when they begin to petition, you know, uh, the, the issue of marriage is important because um, women's eligibility and their rights within to establish themselves as union widows hinges on the question of marriage. And so that's why I was making a big deal about that earlier. And without legal recognition, now you're talking about a population that though their spouses have enlisted, they don't have the legal documentation to even document their marriages, much less, you know, know about, you know, sort of the, 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 the different sort of nuances of, of pension law. And yet they do, and they figure out ways to not only petition, but to sustain a relationship with the federal government over long spans of time on this question. To directly answer the question, the site of claiming union widowhood is, is in Eastern North Carolina where the 
US military and Union forces take over relatively early in March of 1862. You have a large military presence. In addition, you had a pre-existing, you know, highly sophisticated and cosmopolitan community of free Blacks that mixed with um, enslaved populations um, who were already thinking about uh, rights, free labor, and had, um, I'm emphasizing this because they have experience sort of even negotiating with military administrators about enlistment, about work, working on fortifications, working for quartermasters units. And so that initial phase or pass, one is a question of legislation. One, creating space within the pension systems, legal system, so that uh, formerly enslaved women could make a claim. Once those laws are passed, you begin to see this trickle of cases come up, right? Um, and that's in part because when you think about it, on the one hand, you have women who are eligible for survivor's benefits. On the other hand, you're talking about women who are losing their spouses at war. And some, some of the most immediate concerns are to figure out literally um, how they're gonna provide for themselves, care for their families, um, particularly if they're in um, vulnerable situations. Thinking about pension law probably isn't the first thing or, or gathering documents isn't the first thing on their mind. But in a place like New Bern, um, these individuals have a number of different resources. One, because of the military presence, but also because of the sort of cosmopolitan nature of this community um, and the large refugee population that um, develops or swells in, in that area during the war, you have, um, and the presence of the Freedmen's Bureau gives them a number of different options of military officials, Freedmen Bureau agents, and even an emerging um, sort of Black literate class that is able to assist with these benefits. And over time, they become more and more sophisticated with that assistance. And so the first wave of people that I identified in um, the pension records, um, sort of helping uh, women or, or, or perhaps explaining to them about the Pension Bureau are white military administrators, white it, it, uh, Freedmen's Bureau agents that are assisting them, and in some cases, white attorneys, um, some local attorneys from North Carolina, others from um, New York who've traveled to North Carolina during this period. But I would also say when these individuals are acting like this, particularly private individuals with legal training, they're doing that because claim agents have an incentive to assist uh, soldiers, black and white, navigate the pension bureaucracy because they have a set rate or fee they get for every successful claim that they file. It's actually the government that's going to pay them, although there are nominal fees that they will charge their clients. And so what happens in New Bern over time is quite frankly, really fascinating. You have an initial wave of uh, white claims agents, many who have legal training, some who don't. But by the 1880s, you have the emergence of a, you know, sort of black class of, or, or, or black bar, if you will, you know, who have legal training, who, who begin to represent these claims. Sometimes folks don't have legal training. Sometimes they're, they're ministers, they're people who have come of age in these um, community institutions that, that we just talked about that are working really at the behest of the women and um, disabled soldiers who are returning from war to assist them facilitate, facilitate those claims. And so over time, um, you begin to see much more vividly that information about the Pension Bureau as women begin to engage more with the Pension Bureau as they continue to do that over long spans of time. That information about the Bureau, whereas once was sort of in the 
in the holds of white military administrators and other um, professionals, white professionals, now that information is very much circulating in the community. Everyday individuals are informing each other about what's happening in their case, how they might comport, claims that they might be eligible for. And it becomes, you know, through neighborhood networks, um, people begin to share information about the process. The other piece of this that I've been able to derive from the records is um, when people are witnessing for, for one another or coming forward to give affidavits or legal statements about their a person's service within the war or to witness or, or discuss the, the legitimacy of the marriage of the woman coming forward. Oftentimes you'll see those same people showing up in other people's cases. That is to say that soldiers' widows are showing up for some, but they're also showing up for other widows. It becomes very much a communal process um, in New Bern, at least, where you can begin to trace not only neighborhood networks, not only wartime movement, but oftentimes you can trace, what, which was the case for me, is that you can really trace this, this process of communities, you know, sort of reasserting themselves and reestablishing themselves. One community in particular in Eastern North Carolina, um, I was able to trace from Hyde County to the Roanoke Colony, which is a, a refugee site set up for the families of black soldiers during the war. And then a, another group of those people then moved to New Bern together. And you see them literally in one another's cases, uh, witnessing and supporting one another through the, the pension process. So uh, for me, I wanted to do something different in this, this project, and that is to say, I didn't wanna just tell um, the eligibility requirements from the perspective of the Bureau, but I wanted to kind of get into the, the community institutions, how the community exchanged information about pension laws, and how they began to educate one another about that process. So, so um, I love that question because I think it's a good one. And I think that it gets to the heart of um, some of the larger issues that we've already covered in terms of community basis. That, that, that in other words, that, that much of what you see in the pension process is facilitated because of those moments after uh, emancipation when you have the rise of Black community institutions that then serves as a platform for them to sustain their relationship with the government after the Civil War and well into the 20th century. So can you lay out the steps to receiving a pension that a Black widow would have to go through? I know that that's, you know, you were saying that's not you know, just what your book is about, because you, you go into such more about the community and, and you know, hu humanize it. It's not just a, you know, bureaucracy mm -hmm. process. Um, but, but could you perhaps lay that out so that we could understand what that process that they would have to go through would be like? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a, this is a great, you know, so one thing about me, I like basic questions because I think sometimes basic questions open up so much. Um, and, and I ask the same question, right? I mean, I had to get a hold of, well, well how, you know, what, what, what was this like? And asking that question also helped me shape and trace a theme and, and patterns in the work. So again, getting back to this question of marriage, union widows eligibility hinged on their ability to, to, to collect benefits, hinged on their ability to document and prove marriage to uh, the pension bureaucracy to its satisfaction. White widows oftentimes have the legal documentation, poor white widows in the South sometimes suffer as well, many times suffer as well without having legal documentation, but especially during the wartime years, but overwhelmingly because of the case with enslaved people, because their mar marriages are not legalized or recognized by law, they don't have that legal documentation 
Now that changes during the war. As they're entering refuge sites of refugee camps, there are military administrators who are insisting that couples marry. So you do begin to see patterns of individuals who marry during the war, they marry their, their spouse before they go off and, and, and enlist. That's a good thing for those folks because they now have documentation of their marriage. But what I also find is that there are women presenting, and, and again, the Bureau says we, we're, we're going to accept create a pathway for formerly enslaved people to make claims by retroactively recognizing slave marriage. And essentially what they mean by that is that in lieu of legal documentation, they will accept witness testimony to you know, individuals from the community who said yes. And sometimes those individuals are former enslavers, they're former uh, farmers, uh, field hands, overseers who testify saying yes, in fact, these this, this couple was in fact uh, married. But, to return to the question of what, what the steps look like. So oftentimes women would, you know, fill out affidavits, formalize um, certified statements, put them together, a claim agent will help them present those documents to uh, the pension bureau, they'll send that up. These are long-term struggles. So it may be a year, it may be a couple of months in the early days of reconstruction, might be, you know, one to three years that they'll, they'll hear back. And in the meantime, they're continuing to send up evidence, right? So they're sending up that evidence. And oftentimes what happens in the case of formerly enslaved women, because they don't have documentation, a special examination will be called for. What that means is that a representative from the Pension Bureau before the 1880s, there were bureau examiners, you'll see that language, but uh, after the 1880s, they're called special examiners. They come into communities and literally, so, so they exist before the 1880s, there's just a shift in nomenclature, but they come into communities and they interview women, they interview their neighbors about um, not only whether or not they were married, but whether or not the, the widow remarried, because if she remarried, then she's no longer eligible for uh, to collect survivor's benefits. She would only be eligible for the period of, of her widowhood from the Bureau's perspective. And so there's a lot of talking back and forth. And, and so again, to say what, what I wanna just return to is the reason why I, I, I love this question because for black women, because they don't have legal documentation, and this is oftentimes the case for, for, for free black women as well, there's also oftentimes an extra step in, in which they have to be interviewed by special examiners. Those special examinations are sort of quasi legal proceedings, if you will, where they're speaking face to face with individuals who represent the Bureau, but for them, they represent the face of the, of the Bureau. So literally, as I talk about in the book, they're talking back to the state. So we talked earlier about how uh, women learned about Pension Bureau, its laws, procedures. This is another place, I would argue, that women begin become really, really savvy in terms of the number of times that they're having to interact with special examiners. And by the way, those examinations could be very hostile. They can be very invasive. Examiners are asking very, very sort of personal questions about women's private lives, their intimate lives, what they did after a, a soldier died, whether or not if the soldier returned to war, were they a good uh, wife, were they caretaking? And they will proceed to ask a large number of people within the community if that in fact is the case. So in addition to establishing their eligibility for widow's benefits or survivor's benefits, what these testimonies offer is a real sort of understanding or behind the scenes look at what working class populations in particular, black populations 
think about marriage, about how they're how they're thinking about family, how they're thinking about when women why the roles of wives within a household, the roles of husbands within a household. What are a husband's responsibilities to to a wife? What is a wife's responsibility to a husband? So you get this really sort of interesting dialogue, not only from the petitioner, but oftentimes from the community about, you know, sort of individual assessments about people. And then also the sort of places of disagreement and, and discontent. Um, there are a lot of times you'll look at testimonies from people within the community who, who say, well, I don't think so-and-so deserves a pension. She wasn't taking care of the husband very well, you know, the spouse. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that, that, that come out of these records. And, and the other point that I would say, because these are such long-term battles, right? They take a long span of time. I think the other question to ask is, well, what are, what are they doing in the meantime? And so you'll see a lot of transience, a lot of poverty, which is what's happening with, with on the one hand, women are, are not only having to present themselves as respectable in the terms um, that bureau officials expect, but also they're presenting their own ideas about respectability that are cultivated within their community. And, you know, a respectable widow, a working woman would go out, earn wages, but also do the sort of caretaking responsibilities for their husband. Um, but they also experienced a good deal of poverty in the period in which they had to wait between uh, hearing from initially filing and also hearing from uh, the pension bureau. And even when they are pensioned, um, that's not a permanent status. Those benefits can be revoked or taken away. And I would also add that, you know, because I'm sure listeners want to know, well, well, how much, how much was a, a pension? Women were paid on a quarterly basis. It was about $8 a month. Um, so we're not talking about something that's going to, you know, tra transform their life. But on the other hand, it does, because what it means for poor and working class women is that they have a, a social safety net that we begin to talk about in the early 20th century with social security benefits, but they have a reliable source of income now that enables them to maybe if a, 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 a position that they are holding isn't the best sort of working conditions, they can kind of remove themselves from the labor market that gives them more stability to be able um, to do that. The last thing that I would say about these benefits, just as a point of clarification, is that these women would be collecting the same amount as white widows in the North. And so it's an extraordinary um, sort of intervention or infusion of cash into the daily lives of women, as, as well as disabled um, veterans, right? Um, because all of them don't die during the war, but they're coming home. They receive disabled. Uh, they receive benefits for disabilities. You know, it's a, it's a, it's not a transformative amount um, of money, but it certainly is amount of money that allows them to remain um, comfortable, to have some stability in their lives. And I think this question is really important, particularly when you think about what we were talking about earlier in terms of the transition to free labor. So as you have a population of newly freed people moving into free labor society, you also have them petitioning and engaging legal institutions, governmental institutions. And in the case of um, survivors or, or Black Indian widows, they're bringing resources within their communities to support the very institutions that we were talking about um, earlier. Uh, would you like to tell us any more about your book, perhaps where viewers would be able to purchase it if they were, you know, interested in today's presentation and wanted to learn more? <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, so the book is published by uh, Duke University Press. So you can go to Duke 
us um, directly um, and, and purchase it. You can uh, also find it easily um, through major booksellers across the internet. So, but I really urge people just to purchase it directly uh, from Duke University Press. The other thing that I would say about the book, usually sort of I, I, I read case studies, um, and, but, but one person that I just wanted to talk about who uh, we were talking about claims agents and the rise of black claims agents in a particular moment. One of those figures to emerge is a former slave who enslaved man who lived in Eastern North Carolina. From what I can tell refugees to uh, Newburn sometime during the Civil War is self-educated or self-taught um, to borrow from Heather Williams and begins to represent claims. He's not a certified attorney in the state of North Carolina, but he does have uh, the knowledge, acquires enough knowledge and the writing skills to represent the overwhelming number of cases that I looked at um, in Eastern North Carolina. And he renames himself Frederick Douglass. And so oftentimes when I'm talking about the book, people say, oh my gosh, you know, that's the Frederick Douglass, but I always have to remind people, not the abolition, not the abolitionist leader, but a person who renamed himself Frederick Douglass. But I mentioned that because I'm working on a project now that really sort of traces Black legal communities and Frederick Douglass, the claim agent who, who shows up in my book is going to be a central uh, figure that guides us through Black life in the late 19th century. Um, and so viewers can expect or, or your audience can expect to learn more about naming traditions. Um, they can expect to learn more about Black legal communities and more around, around those themes and probably see much more about the Pension Bureau and the other legal actors who, who move and move through this process. So thank you. Absolutely. That sounds fascinating as well as you continue your, your work in this subject. And thank you again so much for being with us today. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We greatly appreciate your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Then Again. You can follow the Northeast Georgia History Center on Facebook and Instagram and check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of great programs. Thanks, y'all, and see you next week for another episode of Then Again.